If you'd uh, open in your copy of God's Word with me to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, and we're going to be in 33 verse 18 through 34 and verse 8. And if you've been with us for, well, since at least the beginning of this series on the attributes of God, you know that we're coming back today sort of to where we started our journey together. Uh, probably a few months ago now, we begun in this very text with the incomprehensibility of God. Moses makes a request to God, please show me your glory. And God's answer to Moses indicates that we cannot understand him as he is in himself, as he understands himself, that we cannot see him as he sees himself in himself, that God is infinitely above our capacity to either see or to understand. But God reveals himself so that we may apprehend him. That's where we left this text at the beginning of our series together, God's incomprehensibility. But I think it's fitting that we come back here because what God says to Moses about his incomprehensible essence, he does it by revealing his goodness to Moses. And that's what the attribute of God that we're going to look at today. We're going to look at God's goodness. God's goodness being something that theologians call one of the, or sort of the comprehensive moral perfection of God, his sort of all of the different moral attributes of God figured together, when you hold that up, you see his goodness. And that's ultimately how God reveals his glory to Moses in this text, both in the event promised in chapter 33 and when the event takes place in chapter 34. So let's uh, read the text of God's word together. Exodus chapter 33, starting in verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And the Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will... Write on the tablets the words which are on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come with you. Let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him. 
And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. This part is the reading of God's holy, inspired word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we contemplate your goodness from how you've revealed yourself in your word today, that we would see you as the inexhaustible fountain of all beauty and perfection and goodness that you are. We thank you that that fountain has overflowed on us in Christ. We pray that as we gaze at Jesus, as we see Christ for his infinite beauty and value and worth, that we would gain a deeper appreciation and a deeper awe that you are the God who truly can be called the one who is good. Holy Spirit, help us this morning. Illumine our hearts to understand your word. pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So, like I said, in this text, we're brought to Moses' request to see the glory of God. The request of Moses is, please show me your glory. And he says, you can't see my glory, almost. It's as if he says that. But I will show you my goodness. And then in chapter 34, his goodness is sort of diffused or enumerated in all these different things that God says about himself. That he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So God's love and justice have something to do with his goodness. And God's goodness has something to do with his essential glory that Moses is asking to see. But I think before we get into that, we actually have to ask ourselves, what is it that makes something good? If my wife cooks me supper, and I say, that tasted good, or that supper was good, What am I saying? Well, I'm saying that maybe it supplied some sort of a need that I had. It was good because of the function that it served. It was good because it refreshed me. It was good because it did something for me. It supplied some lack that I had. So that is sort of a functional definition of goodness. It's the same thing if you were going to say you had a good car. A good car is good for what? Maybe like 200 or 300,000 miles? But why is it good? 
Well, it does what you need it to do in order to get you where you need to go. So that also is a functional definition of goodness. But even if we take it one step higher and we talk about it on a personal level, if I say that my wife is good, what am I saying about her? Well, hopefully it would be beyond just sort of functional, like she she fits some need that I have, and I would see some sort of moral goodness in her. I see some sort of beauty of character in her that, yeah, in some sense supplies something that I desire or something that I need or something that I lack. But here's here's the point of this sort of illustration of this mental exercise. Creaturely goodness is explained and experienced oftentimes in in sort of a functional or relative way. In all of these instances, the goodness of someone or something is defined by their conformity to a purpose or to a standard that is outside of themselves. So in all of these things, none of these things are good in and of themselves. They're only good insofar as they, uh, they, they line up with a standard that is outside of themselves, and to some degree they, they meet that standard or they're moving towards it. So creaturely goodness is relative. Creaturely goodness is finite. Creaturely goodness is often functional. Creaturely goodness is aimed outward and upward, and it is dependent upon what we do. But I think that we have to step back and ask ourselves, when we're considering God's goodness, is God's goodness like that? Is God's goodness the same as that sort of functional definition of creaturely goodness where there's a standard that you're either meeting or not meeting? Oftentimes I I, I hear people, even people who aren't Christians, sort of tritely say, well, you know, God is good. God is good. Maybe it's not quite as common to hear that anymore, but you used to hear people say that all the time. But what, what are they actually saying when they say that? What people really mean by that is that God is useful to me. What people actually mean by that is that by what God does for me, he measures up to some sort of standard of goodness that I have set up or that must be out there. So people treat God and his goodness in the same way that we look at creaturely goodness. People confuse God with a creature in the realm of his goodness just like the rest of his other attributes. Oftentimes, if you take everything away from those people, though, Is God still good in their minds? I think this is is one of the fundamental challenges in the sort of the, the saga of Satan and Job. If you take everything away from Job, how will Job speak of the goodness of the Lord? Will Job curse the Lord? Will Job say, say, the Lord is no longer good because my outward circumstances have changed? Will Satan sit... As, or will uh, Job sit as judge over the Lord and say, you haven't measured up with this sort of functional standard 
of my of goodness. So all of this is to sort of get us contemplating how God's goodness differs from ours. Just like his other all his other attributes. We have to when we think of God's goodness, we have to strip it of all of the creaturely imperfections. Creatures have a relative goodness because our goodness is defined by one outside of ourselves and it's measured by our conformity to him. But this is not how the goodness of God is. God does not have a relative, finite goodness. His goodness, as we're going to see in this text, is infinite, essential goodness. It is a goodness that is so one with his nature that for God to be God, he, it means he is the one who is good. So we see this in uh, Exodus chapter 33 today. Uh, And we see it because that request of Moses to see Yahweh's glory or to see his very essence is met with an exposition of his goodness. Look at verse 18 with me. The first point that I want us to see is that God's essence is goodness. Verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory or let me see you and know you as you see and know yourself above creation and above redemption. Let me see you as you are. Show me your glory. And he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim my name before you, the Lord. So, God will show Moses something about his essence. God will show, God will give Moses, in a manner of speaking, what he is asking for. Moses says, show me your glory or let me see your essence. And God is saying, here's how I can do that for you. Even though you can't comprehend me as I comprehend myself, I will show you my essence. I'll make all my goodness pass before you. So that should be our first clue that God's goodness is not like creaturely goodness. God is identifying his goodness with his essence apart from creation, apart from what he does, apart from the function that he serves in our lives. God is the one who is good above and beyond all of these things. That's how it differs from creaturely goodness. He's not good because he creates, and he is not good because he redeems. He redeems and he creates because he is good, in order to manifest that goodness to his creatures. And ultimately, his goodness is his divine glory that he will show to Moses. He isn't showing Moses something other than what Moses asks for. He's going to give Moses the sight of his glory through his goodness. But our second clue is sort of similar to it. That Our second clue that God's goodness is very different from ours Look at look at what uh, look at what Moses records in verse the second part of verse 19. The second part of verse 19, Moses records God's repetition to him of the divine name. So 
I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Do you remember a uh, couple months ago when, we, when I uh, preached on Exodus chapter 3 when God reveals to Moses that he is the I am that I am, and he appears to Moses in the burning bush, what God was communicating about his own nature to Moses? He was, as he revealed that he is the I am, which is that name, Yahweh, the, the name for the self-existent God, the name for the God who just is apart from creation, he reveals to Moses through that name that the one who saves Israel is the simple, self-existent, and independent God who stands in need of no creature to be who he is or to do what he does. So that should sort of factor into how we see the Lord's goodness because he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And then he links his goodness with that divine name, which is the name of his transcendence. In other words, there's nothing, that, there's nothing creaturely that we can define his goodness by. Creaturely goodness depends upon a standard outside of itself for its goodness. That's the reason that creaturely goodness increases or decreases. But what the name Yahweh shows us about God's goodness is that he is goodness from himself. He is the one who just is. And the one who just is is the one who is good. To be the I am means to be good. He is not becoming better in accordance with some standard outside of himself. He is pure actuality of infinite goodness. That is what the connection between the divine name, God's glory uh, being shown to Moses, and his goodness is. God is showing Moses, this is who I am in myself. This is the perfection of my nature. This is how I am different from you. So even with these moral attributes, we have to realize that God possesses them in a way that creatures do not. God possesses love in a different way than creatures possess love. His love is God love. Our love is creaturely love. God's justice is God justice. Our justice is creaturely and partial justice. So with all of these attributes, including his goodness, we have to see that he possesses them in a way that is different from us. But I think what this ends up doing is this eviscerates any idea that we have gotten a raw deal from God. This eviscerates any idea that when we go through trials and when we go through tribulations, that that indicts the goodness of God. Because God's goodness is not dependent upon the circumstances that he brings into our lives. God's goodness is not dependent upon anything in this creation. He is goodness itself, and all that he does is good and in accordance with his nature. Really, I think that God says stuff like this about himself in Scripture in order to level our pride. What was the right response of Job when he had everything torn away from him? Was he supposed to see that and come to the conclusion that God is not good because he's not measuring up 
to what I think the standard of goodness is. No, Job was supposed to realize that whatever is coming into my life is from the hand of the one who is good in himself, the one who never does anything wrong, the infinitely perfect being, beautiful in all of his attributes. So whatever comes into my life, I should humbly accept from his hand because his goodness is not dependent upon it. It's a manifestation of his goodness. And it's the same way for those who are in Christ. Everything that God brings into your life, none of it should make you doubt his essential goodness. In fact, even the horrible things that come into your life, even the trials, even the tribulations, even persecution, even mockery, no matter what may come, we have God who is goodness in and of himself. And one of the ways that he works out his his good purposes in our lives is through those things that he brings into our lives. So this eviscerates any notion that we can question the character of God. But also see in the last part of verse, or verse chapter thirty three, verse nineteen. So first he says he's going to make his goodness pass before him. Then he says, I'm going to proclaim before you my name, the Lord. But then he says something really, really interesting about his action. And it's sort of puzzling. He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. It seems like a weird thing to connect with God's goodness and his glory at that point, doesn't it? God's name, his goodness, and his glory, but then he adds in, I will show mercy on whom I show mercy, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. That's a little bit puzzling. Why does he add that in there about his actions? Well, I think it's to encourage Moses that in the exercise of God's mercy and his justice, All of this is an exercise of his goodness. But why is God's particular mercy to the exclusion of some and to the uh, to the exclusion of some an expression of his goodness? Because that's what God is saying here. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter nine, verses 14 through 18. Turn there with me. Romans chapter nine, verses 14 through 18. Paul actually quotes this passage when he's talking about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, when he's talking about not all Israel belonging to the true Israel, when he's talking about God's purposes of election and predestination, the fact that he has a people that he has chosen by his grace. He quotes this passage that says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. Start with verse 14 with me. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So what God is communicating to Moses in this passage is, I save and I damn according to my will. And that, apparently, somehow, is a manifestation of the goodness of his nature. That's a puzzling thing, isn't it? Or at least at first it's a puzzling thing. So what is it about election and reprobation, or God's desire to save and damn according to his own will alone, what is it about that that manifests the essential goodness of God? Well, I think what God is saying here, when we consider the context, is that for God to be good, he himself must be the ultimate end or the purpose or the reason in all that he does. In, in other words, for God to be good, we cannot be the final goal of all that he does. If we were the final goal of everything that God, God did, that would be moral imperfection. Because we are not the most infinitely beautiful and infinitely perfect beings in the universe. Whatever God does, his final and ultimate end in that action must be his own glory and his own glory alone for him to be good. So God's action in election, God's action in reprobation, God's action in whom he shows mercy to and whom he hardens, Ultimately, it's good because he himself is the final end that he does those things for. God looks at Pharaoh and says, I'm going to harden your heart. But not only does that not contradict my goodness, it is a manifestation of my goodness. Listen to what Herman Bavink says about this, because I think he says it better than I can. He has no goal, meaning God. God has no goal outside of himself, but is the self-sufficient, the all-sufficient. He receives nothing, but only gives. All things need him. He needs nothing or nobody. He always aims at himself because he cannot rest in anything other than himself. Inasmuch as he is the absolutely good and perfect one, he may not love anything else except with a view to himself. He may not and cannot be content with less than absolute perfection. When he loves others, he loves himself in them. For that same reason, he is also blessed in himself as the sum of all goodness and perfection. So what's Baving's point there? Baving's point there, in a much better way than I could describe it, is that God's, in order for God's actions to be good, they must be acted out and decreed on the basis of his goal of glorifying himself and his goal of glorifying himself alone. That's why, Paul, or that's why uh, God reveals to Moses his glorious nature through his goodness attached to his divine name and then has, I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful 
then I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Because his electing love is a manifestation of his good determination to glorify himself in all the earth. An infinitely perfect being cannot have anything other than his own perfection as his ultimate end in all that he does. I think Paul, uh, Paul shows this in Ephesians chapter 1. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. There are several statements by Paul that show that this is true. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So this is God's choice of individuals for blessing and salvation and glory. But then look what he says in the second part of verse 4. In love he predestined us. So that's God's, I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to what? According to the purpose of his will. So that's the origin of his action. It, doesn't, it isn't based on anything other than his good pleasure. And then look at what verse 6 says. What is his goal in predestinating for adoption through Jesus Christ according with what he eternally willed in Christ before the ages began? What's his goal? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. So in those couple verses, you have God's action, you have the origin of his action, and you have the ultimate goal of his action. And the ultimate goal of all of God's actions is his own glory itself. That's what it means for God's actions to be good. But it's not just in those verses that we have that paradigm. Verse, starting in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon, him in all, upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. The mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, in thing, things in heaven and things on earth. So there was a plan for the fullness of time. He set this forth in Christ. But ultimately, what was that plan for? To unite all things into the incarnate and glorified Son of God. In other words, God's purpose in redemption is the glorifying of His Son who took on flesh and died and rose again. That's the end or that's the, God's goal in our redemption. And that's the reason he has mercy on whom he has mercy and he hardens whom he hardens. He himself is his ultimate goal. And that's what God's goodness means. In everything that he does, he's aiming at his own infinite perfection and character. It's not just in Ephesians. We won't go there, but Titus 2.4 says the same thing. The goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Not by works done by us in righteousness, but by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
We were just in Romans chapter 9, but in verses 22 and 23, we see that salvation and damnation are for the purpose of eternally unfolding the good character of God to all of creation. Actually, turn there with me, with me back to Romans chapter 9, verses 22 through 23. I know we're backtracking, but there's something in verses 22, through 22 and 23 that I want us to see together. So we just read verses 14 through 18, where he's talking about hardening Pharaoh, raising Pharaoh up so that he might show his power in him. But then it's reinforced in a very strong way in 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy with which, or which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So why does God save and why does God damn? Because he desires to exposit his character to all of creation. He desires to make known his wrath and to make known his power and to make known his justice. And then he has mercy because he desires to pour out the riches of his love on vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. So, For God to be good, all that he does must be in accordance with and for the end of his own perfection. But then look lastly, and this is the second part of the passage in uh, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 8. Exodus 34, 6 through 8. So in chapter 33, this was God promising this event to Moses. In chapter 34, this event is actually happening. Exodus chapter 33 uh, describes Moses' request and God saying what he will do. And chapter 34 describes the event itself. I want us to pay particular attention to how God's goodness that he says will pass before Moses is unfolded in chapter 34. Exodus 34, starting in verse 6. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, or the name of Yahweh. And Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So how does God's goodness pass before Moses? Because we don't see anything, we don't see the word goodness in chapter 34. But what do we see? We see God's love and his mercy and his justice and his wrath. That is the exposition of God's goodness to Moses. This this faithful love of God and this justice will be sort of the twin truths about God that carry us through the entire storyline of the Old Testament. Think about what Pastor Calvin's been preaching through lately, about blessings and curses 
in the book of Deuteronomy. What is that essentially saying? He's saying, yes, I will show you my steadfast love. Yes, I will make my justice known in the history of my people as well. So this refrain about God's steadfast love, it's not hard to see how that becomes sort of the worship language of God's people. Psalm 103, verses 6 through 8. This, this kind of language is, is littered all throughout the Psalter. We saw it in Psalm, one, chapter, uh, Psalm 145 as well. Psalm 103, verses 6 through 8. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is what? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That was part of the psalmist's basic confession about the character of Yahweh's goodness. That he's slow to anger. That he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness for his people. He's the God who keeps all of his promises. He's the God who has never been unfaithful to a single promise in the history of his people. He's the God who holds out his hands to a disobedient and rebellious people, beckoning them to come back to himself, and he'll be merciful and kind to them. This steadfast love and faithfulness for thousands became sort of part of the worship language of God's people. We see it also in... uh, Psalm chapter 145, verses 4 through 9. Psalm, one, Psalm 145, verses 4 through 9. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. So they're thinking about the acts of God's power in the history of the people. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. So the psalmist has this category in his mind too, that the steadfast, the grace and the mercy of God, the steadfast love of the Lord is a manifestation of the goodness of his character. But what does this also say? If his, there's another side to that coin, if his judgment and his wrath is also an exposition of his goodness, what does it say about the severity that God deals with sin with? He says in, God says to Moses in verse, the second part of verse 7, after he says, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who, is, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. He's the God who will not overlook sin. He's the God who will deal with sin with the eternal and infinite hatred that it deserves because sin is an affront to his goodness. 
Most modern evangelicals, I think, are are hesitant to admit that hell itself even exists. Let alone that hell is an expression of the goodness of God. You know, that should terrify us. That should give us a healthy fear of the Lord. Hell is not an injustice. Hell is what the goodness of God demands for treasonous sinners. What should terrify you about the nature of God is that it it is His goodness that sends sinners to hell and that they are tormented for eternity. That is an expression of His good nature. It's not just an expression of His justice. It's not just an expression of His wrath. It's an expression of His goodness. Hell will be filled with people suffering unimaginable torment for all eternity as a holy God pours out wrath that will never be satisfied on them. And he will look at it and say, this is good. And not only that, all creation at that site will resound, God is good. So the question that I want to leave you with today, how will you experience God's goodness for all eternity. Because you're either going to experience God's goodness in one of these two ways. You're either going to say for eternity at the throne of Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And you will say that because you will see with your eyes the slain and risen Lamb that has purchased you and suffered the justice of God on your behalf. You will experience that steadfast love through the slain and risen Lamb for all of eternity if you are in Christ. But there is another way that the mass of humanity will experience the goodness of God and that is in hell. So today, I want you to contemplate that. The goodness of God means that he's a God who does delight to show mercy, but he's also a God who is perfect in justice, and the cross of Jesus Christ is the perfect resolution of those two attributes of God. The cross is the ultimate emblem of the goodness of God, where the wrath of God is satisfied on behalf of vile, helpless sinners like us. And we can come and experience his inexhaustible, steadfast love for all eternity. This is not a God to be trifled with. This is a God who is infinite in goodness. He is good from himself and he will be glorified in the earth. So trust in Christ. Worship Christ. Delight in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good. And that if we're resting in Christ, we can bask in your infinite goodness and know that you are our God and you are our God for eternity. You are an inestimable treasure to your people. Psalm 16 says that in your presence is the fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We thank you that that is the case for those who are yours because of your son. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you uh, stand with me? and turn in your Trinity hymnal to Trinity number one.